great to be back tonight to just study the Word of God together once again. We are returning to our study of the Gospel of John, and we find ourselves in John chapter 11. So if you have your Bibles, open them to John chapter 11. Chapter 11 is a pivotal point in the Gospel of John because it is... Uh, the final public act of Jesus Christ before his final week on earth. Once you begin John chapter 12, that is the final week of Jesus' life. So up through John chapter 1 into John chapter 11, well over two plus years, well, 30 plus years of his life have gone on, and his ministry that was three or so years has gone on since the early chapters in John chapter 2. So... Uh, this will be the final week beginning in John chapter 12. And I believe that if we were to categorize the miracles that Christ, or at least that we have categorized for us throughout this gospel from least to the greatest, the one in John chapter 11 would in fact be, I think, his greatest miracle. Why? Because it's the raising of a man to life who had been dead four days. Of course, the whole chapter uh, is more than just simply a story. Oftentimes we read through the Gospels and we think, well, that's a nice story. But it's more than just a story because it has spiritual implications for us. Uh, Spiritual truth that we can apply to our lives, especially when we think about the raising of life of those who are not necessarily physically dead, but those who are spiritually dead. When we think about the raising of a spiritually dead life, to life because of sin. It's one thing to be raised physically from the dead, but it's an entirely greater miracle to raise those who are spiritually dead to life. Physical life only lasts for time. Eternity goes on forever. And so that's what we see happening here. And I want to read for us tonight verses 27 through the first part of verse 38 and then just draw a couple truths for us out of these for us to look at. Beginning in verse 27, says this. And she said to him, that is Martha, who had just talked with Jesus about the death of her brother. She said to him, yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. And when she had said this, she went away and called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, the teacher is here and is calling for you. When she heard it, she arose quickly and was coming to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. The Jews then who were with her in the house and consoling her when they saw that Mary arose from and quickly went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Therefore, when Mary came to Jesus... Uh, Where he was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled, and said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. And so the Jews were saying, Behold, how he loved him. Some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of him who was blind have kept this man from dying? Jesus, therefore, again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now, if you were with us two weeks ago in our evening service, you probably remember me saying concerning myself that although I am a fairly fun-loving guy, a jovial person, for the most part I'm probably described by many as a very serious person. And I, I want you to know that I have not always been like that. In fact, when I was a young boy, and as I developed into adulthood, you would have probably described me as someone who was extremely shy and introverted. Someone who didn't 
want to be around a whole big crowd, especially standing in front of a crowd and talking about anything that had anything to do with serious things. But there were a series of events in my life of which the most important being that which God, by His grace, reached out of His glories of heaven and grabbed my heart, saving me through that and then the other circumstances that He has allowed. I'm not the same person that I was. No longer shy and introverted. No longer somebody who is fearful of being up in front of people and doing what God has given me to do. And the older I get and the longer I'm physically involved in the visible body of Christ, which is the church, I think the more serious I become. I've never been one who is all too concerned with age. You can ask my wife about that. I I really don't think about age like many think about age. But the older I get and the more I am heightened in my awareness about life, I think the more serious and the more urgent the reality of eternity becomes to me. And I'm not saying that because of my age I feel like Because life is short, therefore be serious about life. That's not what I'm saying. I think we understand that God, in His sovereignty, the reality about life is that life only consists of today. There really is no tomorrows, and therefore it's always short. But what I mean is that God has used my life, along with all of the divine pressures that He has brought into my life and Part of that includes shepherding other people. To heighten my concern for what I see happening within the modern Christian culture and how that affects us. I've never been more concerned with the apparent spiritual apathy that I see in modern Christianity today. Apathy for the things of God. Apathy for the church. Apathy for truth. You've heard me say in the past, and I'm sure you'll hear me say it again, so what you'll hear me say now is not new to you, but each and every time that I open the Word of God to study it, each and every time I look into it, and particularly in the study of this gospel, this concern about apathy comes just screaming back into my mind. Because it seems to me, at least as I look at the Christian culture around us, that many are more apathetic than we would like to care to admit. That evangelicalism has become really a society of professing believers who really have very little ability within their spiritual maturity to handle any kind of great, deep, theological, spiritual concept. Any deep thought, the great wonderful truths of God and who God is by His very nature, the very character of who He is, the truth and the reality of salvation through Jesus Christ, I think has really been uh, in many ways brought down to a weightlessness in our thoughts. It should be a massive weight upon us, but really it is become weightless. The lofty thoughts of Christ, the grand realities of who God is in Himself seem to just sit very lightly on us. And because of that, I think it has very little impact upon our lives. I know Randy has said several times what we think of God, what our first thoughts of God is in our minds is who... What we think of God in the first thing of our mind is, is really the essence of our the reality of the God we serve. Several years ago, David Wells, author and one who thinks about these things on a regular basis, wrote a, a book called God in the Wasteland. And he talked about this whole idea of God being weightless in our minds. Listen to what he writes. He says this, It. And what he means by that is the capacity to handle deep matters 
It's one thing of the defining marks of our time that God is now, as he terms it, weightless. He said, I do not mean by this that he is ethereal, but rather that he has become unimportant. He rests upon the world so inconsequentially as to not be noticeable. He has lost his saliency for human life. Those who assure the pollsters of their belief in God's existence may nonetheless consider him less interesting than television, his commands less authoritative than their appetites for affluence and influence, his judgment no more awe-inspiring than the evening news, his truth less compelling than the advertiser's sweet fog of flattery and lies. That is weightlessness. It is a condition we have assigned him after having nudged him out to the periphery of our secularized life, unquote. He goes on to say, quote, weightlessness tells us nothing about God, but everything about ourselves, about our condition, and about our psychological disposition to exclude God from our reality, unquote. He's right is exactly what is taking place in our world. This is exactly what has been happening in the evangelical world as we know it. This is why you can go to anywhere in the country and talk to anybody else in the country who has heard of New England. And you ask them about New England, them not knowing that you are part of New England, and they will say, oh, New England is a wasteland. It is dead. It is cold. There is no Christians in New England. God has been squeezed out by the mundane, by the trivial. And because the constant diet of mindless triviality affects us, oftentimes many professing Christians have no desire for the weighty things of real Christianity. This was talked about again years ago by Douglas Gruthius a man who writes for a periodical named Modern Reformation. He says this in an article entitled, How the Bombarding Images of TV Culture Undermine the Power of Words. And he says this is a reality in Christianity. Here's what he says, quote, The triumph of the televised image over the word contributes to the depthlessness of postmodern sensibility. What he means by postmodernism is any of us who are living in the industrialized age. So he's talking about all of us. And he says this, quote, One cannot muse over a television program the way one ponders a character in William Shakespeare or C.S. Lewis or a Blaise Pascal parable or a line from a T.S. Eliot poem such as, quote, But our lot crawls between dry ribs, to keep its metaphysics warm. No one on television could utter such a serious line. It would be bad television, too abstract, too poetic, too deep, just not entertaining. He goes on, not only that, but the images appear and disappear and reappear without a proper rational context. An attempt at a sobering news story about slavery in the Sudan is followed by a lively advertisement for Disneyland. And that's followed by an appeal to purchase pantyhose that will make any woman irresistible. And it goes on and on. Why am I so serious? Why should we be so serious? Why am I so serious about what is said from this pulpit and every other pulpit that claims to know God? Why am I so serious about your life? Why am I so serious about my life? Why am I so serious about how we live, especially since we name the name of Christ? I'll tell you why. Because God is serious. God is serious. And he shows us just how personally and how seriously he is involved in our lives each and every day. And he is showing us his personal seriousness in John chapter 11 in this text. 
that I read for us. And the question that I want each of us to be asking ourselves tonight is the very title of this message. So just how serious are you? So just how serious are you? Have you ever wondered, just by way of thinking through this, have you ever wondered what the emotions of God look like? Ever wondered when, when God expresses emotions, what that looks like? What does God feel like when He sees death? What does God have? What happens with God through His humanity when He experiences the ravages of sin that are all about around Him? How serious is God? about the weighty things of this life. How serious is God? Well, I, I think as we work through this text tonight, at least I pray that as we work through this text tonight, we'll begin to answer some of those questions. But I think more than that, I pray more than that, that, that as we see God in the flesh, as we look once again at Jesus Christ, that we'll be motivated to live each day, every moment, as if it's our last week, our last day, or even our last minute on earth. Now I want us to look at this passage tonight from two vantage points. Just two perspectives. I just want to draw two things out of this. They both deal with the weightiness that God should have in our lives when we think about Him. The weightiness of God. And the first serious vantage point that we need to see tonight is this. Christ's personal invitation to come to Him. We need to let the weightiness of that reality be upon us. Christ's personal invitation to come to Him. As we move through this text, we get into the section in verses 27 through 38 that seems just rather narrative-like, just a moving of, of the story along. And in verses 28 through 32, we get this whole reality of Christ's invitation to come to him. Notice what it says. And when she had said this, that is when Martha had replied to Jesus' question about, do you believe this? And she says to him, I I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, he who comes in the world. And when she said this, she went away and called Mary her sister saying secretly, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when Mary, she, heard it, she arose quickly and was coming to him. And Jesus was not yet coming to the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. And the Jews, then when they were in the house consoling her, they saw that Mary rose quickly, went out, followed her, supposing that she's going to the tomb to weep there. And therefore, when Jesus, when Mary came to Jesus, and she saw him, she fell at his feet, saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now there is an invitation here by Christ. And the invitation is for Mary to come to him. It isn't written directly in our text. You don't see it anywhere here where it says, Jesus said to her, Mary, come to me. But we know that he asked for her because in verse 28, Martha says to her, the teacher is here and he is calling for you. The word call simply means to summons. He is summoning, summonsing you. Mary is being summoned by Christ to come to him. Martha's still in the story. She hasn't moved off the scene. And instead of trying to keep Mary from Jesus, like Martha was doing in Luke chapter 10 when we talked about the three that are involved in this story, Martha in Luke chapter 10 was busy about the details of triviality in life. Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus, and Martha goes to Jesus and says, Why is she doing that? She should be helping me. She wants Mary to be away from Jesus. Well, now something has changed. 
before she's distracted by the trivial stuff, and now she's concerned with that which is weighty. The weighty realities of her newfound or new belief, if if you will. And she goes, in light of that, immediately to her sister in order to have Mary come to be with Jesus. That's what we see happening here in verse 27 in the first part of 28. She goes to her sister Mary. She goes quickly. And she says to her sister, the teacher is here and he is summoning you. What happened in Martha's life? talked a little bit about this a few weeks back. What made the difference in her life? Why would she now be concerned with what is serious in life rather than what is trivial? Certainly it's not simply that her brother's now dead. She doesn't have to deal with those details anymore. She's still concerned with all of that. She's concerned with Jesus. We know from verse 21 she says the same thing that we find Mary saying here in verse 32. If you'd been here brother would not have died. And yet, Jesus confronts Martha directly. And I think that's the difference. It's the difference now with Martha's life. Martha had herself met with Jesus Christ. And she had been moved by the weight of what he had said. I am the resurrection and the life. Martha had just met with Christ. He clearly told her and all who were around her, Martha, listen, you trust in me. Don't trust in all those other things. You trust in me. I am both the present and the future. I am the resurrection and the life. Listen, that is a very weighty truth. That is a monumental truth. And I believe Martha is so stirred by that fact, by his words, by his truth, by the teaching, that she didn't wait for someone else to go get Mary. She went herself. She didn't say, hey, listen, somebody quickly go find my sister and tell her to come to me because I got some things I want to share with her. No, she went and got Mary herself. It sounds a lot like John chapter 1 when Andrew was introduced to Jesus Christ, and Andrew quickly ran and got his brother. And I think if we're not careful here, we can miss some of what the Spirit has going on here by way of implication for us. And it's this. Just this simple thing. Interaction with God. Interact, listen, interaction with God ought to always stir us to action. Interaction with God ought to always stir us to action. And it takes the one-on-one action of you and I in the lives of others, we've talked about it here, to bring them to Christ. Our interaction with Christ ought to stir us to action to bring others to Christ. In other words, God, for God, this is God's preordained means for others to come to Him. And unless we, get this, unless you and I spend time with Jesus Christ, unless we spend time listening to His Word, not just being like we learned this morning, hearers of it, but being doers of it, unless we do that, we will never be stored in our hearts to pass that on. Ever. I think this is part of what disturbs me about our modern day Christianity. Where is the seriousness of this in our hearts? Maybe it's better to ask the question this way. Or maybe you've asked this question of many people. Are you a Christian? And the answer is usually given, at least if they're not offended by the question first, I am. Then the follow-up question is, then do you personally go and call others to Christ? Do you personally call others to Jesus Christ? 
In other words, does the weight of the invitation to you, does the weight of the call to you, does the weight of what Jesus Christ has taught you have any bearing on what you do today by way of you going and being the invitation through which you call others to Christ? You see, I think really if if we honestly find ourselves saying and admitting, you know, I'm afraid I don't do that, then the reason isn't because we don't have time. The reason isn't because we, we just can't find a, a way to do it or, or we don't have time to do it. The reason is, it isn't that I'm too frightened and I just am afraid to do that, afraid of rejection. That's not the reason. No, the reason is we haven't spent time with Jesus Christ ourselves. That's the real reason. And because of that, we're not stirred in our own inner man with the weightiness of that invitation that is upon us. And I think that's part of the lesson that we see here in Martha's response to Jesus Christ's coming. To him saying to her, do you believe this? And she's saying, I I have believed. You see Martha taking that reality and the weight of that reality and immediately going and saying, I've got to tell my sister this. She's got to talk to the teacher. See, you and I will never be able to sing again. We'll never be able to sing the song that we sing sometimes with a clear conscience before God. I'll shout it from the mountaintops. I want the world to know the Lord, the the love of the Lord, the Lord of love has come to me, and I want to just pass it on to everybody. We'll never be able to sing that with a clear conscience unless we spend time with Jesus Christ being stirred up by who He is and what He has done for us. That's what I think you see happening in Martha's life. I think that's why you see such a radical quick change. Martha spent time with Christ. She encountered Christ. So the question is, how serious are you? How serious are you? When she heard it, she arose not the next day, not the next hour, not the next... 15 minutes, she arose quickly. Her sister arose quickly when she heard that Jesus was calling. She went to Jesus. She wasn't yet at the place of believing like Martha was because she said the same thing in verse 32, and yet Martha had been and been impacted with the seriousness of the reality of who Jesus Christ was, and Martha went. That's the first implication, Christ's personal invitation. That should weigh heavy upon us. That should be a serious weight upon us. We should not treat it with weightlessness. There's a second serious vantage point for us to consider in this. The first was Christ's personal invitation. The second is just this, Christ's personal hatred of sin. Christ's personal hatred of sin. We see it in verses 33 to 38. And it's this principle, really, that that strikes me deepest when I ponder the seriousness of Christ. When I think about the weight that should come to bear upon my life. And again, if we're not careful, we'll miss the point. Notice what he says in verse 33, the first part of 38. When Jesus, therefore, saw her weeping, that is Mary, and the Jews who came with her weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled and said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, Behold how he loved him. Some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of him who was blind have kept this man also from dying? Boy, the blind man's story went far and wide from John chapter 9, didn't it? Jesus, therefore, again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. 
The phrase that I want us to focus on in, in this section is found in verse 33 and in verse 38. It says, in verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit. Some, some of your texts say groaned. What does it mean for God in the flesh to be deeply moved in spirit? What does it mean for Christ to be deeply moved, as it says in verse 38, within? He was deeply moved within. What does it mean? For Jesus Christ, for God in the flesh, for the incarnate God creator to come and to be deeply moved in his spirit. These are the best English words that we can come up with to describe what is going on. Yet for me, they're somewhat confusing. Because on the surface, it appears at least as if Jesus is having sympathy pains for these people. And in our minds, that seems to contradict with the very character of Christ. Or at least it's consistent, I should say, with his character, that he would be sympathetic to people. But that's not what this means. Because the word deeply moved in the original language means not to have this deep compassion for people and their plight. What it means is to snort as an expression of anger. So when it says that Jesus was, when he sees the Jews weeping and he sees Mary weeping, he's, he's moved with a snort of anger in his expression to it, in his spirit. And is troubled. Some ways it's translated as violent anger. Now, that alone kind of changes how we see this verse, doesn't it? Because when Christ saw Mary and the others weeping, he was stirred to an expression of anger. Not sinful anger, of course. He's God. He can't be tempted by that. This isn't sinful anger. And... Yet, at the same time, John tells us, the Spirit writing through John, the Spirit giving us the accounting, tells us in verse 39 that although this was happening in the Spirit, outwardly, Jesus wept. This is a totally different word. Wept means to shed tears, real tears. He's deeply moved in his spirit, troubled in his spirit with this expression of violent anger going on. And yet on the outside, there's real tears. We have two emotions, two different emotions, yet one cause. John tells us that when Jesus saw them weeping, he was angered inwardly. And yet outwardly, he shed tears. But at what was he righteously angry? What was he angry and at what did he shed tears? I mean, you got both these things happening. This is the emotions of God himself on display in his humanity. What is he righteously angry at and at what is he shedding tears? We know that God does not sin. We know, therefore, that he cannot be sinfully angry at these people. So what is he righteously angry at? Well, some, if you read, come along and say that Christ was angry at their unbelief. Martha and Mary, those who followed them, the crowd, the Jews, Mary, her friends are wailing. They're crying about the loss of Lazarus. Their response has been, if you were here, he wouldn't have died. Mary's response, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. 
So some say, just like the rest of the world grieves for the loss of a loved one, so too they are grieving as if they have no hope. Grief being that natural emotion, that natural response that we have to someone who dies, a loved one who dies. We certainly would grieve in those ways when yet oftentimes it degenerates to a despair as if there's no resurrection at all, especially if there are those who are no Christ. And so that really is just an implicit denial of belief in who Jesus Christ is. That's really living prior to even encountering Jesus Christ. That's asking the very same question that Martha asked in verse 21 and Mary asked in verse 32. It's like I said last Lord's Day, if our belief does not change how we live, then do we really believe? So that's one possibility, Jesus being righteously angry about their unbelief. But I think there's a second suggestion also. One in which some will say that Jesus is moved emotionally by their grief. He sees their grief as a result of the effects of sin. Sin in the world. The reality that death has infiltrated life again. And therefore he's moved with righteous anger against sin. In other words, the effects of sin have wreaked such havoc upon all of the world and it generates this unending sorrow continually day after day after day upon the hearts of men and because of that Christ is righteously angry. Which is it? Is he angry at their unbelief? Is he righteously angry at the fact that sin affects all things? Well, I'm going to give you that good, well-studied answer. I think it's both. I think it's both. It may seem impossible from our own human perspective to be angry on the one hand and yet empathetic on another hand, as Christ is here. He's angry in his spirit on this one hand and yet empathetic by showing it through his own sadness with them, weeping with them. But I think that's what we see going on here. It's possible with Christ. In fact, it's the very same thing we see in Matthew chapter 23. Turn back there for a moment. Because I think we see the same emotional reality happening. Jesus, remember, begins to pronounce the woes upon the Pharisees. The leaders of Israel, his righteous anger has been stirred. They are leading people astray, continually leading them astray. Their unbelief has to be exposed for what it is. The Pharisees do not believe in Jesus Christ. They have been leading people astray constantly. And so Jesus is is calling them out and he's being the righteous God that he is. He cannot let it go. He cannot overlook it. His righteousness is stirred, much like in John 2 when he goes into the temple and turns over the table. And yet, this is the same God that we see at the end of Matthew 23 in verses 37 through 39, lamenting over Israel. His righteous anger is seen as he pronounces the woes upon the sinful realities and false teachers of Israel. And at the same time, right at the end, he's saying, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on, you shall not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You see, you can almost hear John 11.35 right there. Jesus weeping over his people, the sadness of his heart. Even you and I, if you think about your own life, Even you and I were once the objects of His wrath. His righteous anger 
The wrath against all men. We, of course, were children of wrath, even as the rest, Ephesians chapter 2 says. And in spite of that fact that he predestined us to be the sons through his son, Jesus Christ, in spite of that reality. And so we see the reality of Christ that because he always does the will of the Father, he always follows that righteously. He is righteously indignant when he is faced with the attitudes that are not governed by truths, the truths of his Father. And if sin and illness and even death, all of which are the tragic effects of the fallen man, if these excite his righteous hatred of sin, how much more, how much more would an attitude of unbelief That's one side of Christ's emotions. The other side of Christ's emotions is what we see in John 11.35, his empathy for our condition. Jesus weeping. Jesus is indignant, I think, stirred in his spirit, angered and disgusted at the reality of what sin does and how much it corrupts and all that it brings along in the face of Of all of these things, his spirit is stirred, he's troubled about all of that, and probably even including the reality of what would come just even a short time from this moment. And yet, you see Jesus Christ here in his compassion, his empathy, weeping. Jesus shed real tears. Real tears for Lazarus, not because of a loss, not because of a loss like we do. We shed tears because we, we miss that person. We, we seem to have lost something, at least in the temporal sense. Jesus didn't shed tears because of a loss. He knew that he was going to raise Lazarus now and in the last days. He already told Martha that. So Christ's grief was not from loss, but rather for the same reasons that excite his righteous anger same sin and death, the same unbelief of the people that stirred his righteous anger now stirs his empathy. It's the same thing it does for us. Out of his righteous anger, he hates sin. And out of his righteousness, he's empathetic for our condition. He hates the sin stirred in the spirit, and yet he is empathetic for what that sin has done, what it has accomplished. So right here, in just these few short verses, we see both the divinity of Christ and the humanity of Christ in full view. Here is Christ, indignant reality inside that stirred every time he sees sin. And might, might I add, this is a perfect stirring He has an acute reality about sin that none of us have. He sees sin in all of its ugliness, in its fullness, in every way. We don't see it that way because we're involved in it. We're swimming in the pool. Jesus has a hatred of sin. He has a hatred of its effects that stirs up his righteous anger. And he has such a hatred of sin and its effects that stirs up his empathy for our condition. On the one side, it judges sin. It's the side where his, his wrath comes out. And yet on the other side, it offers himself as the payment for that very penalty. Now, allow me to ask, us this question. Does your Christianity, does your faith see sin and its effects that same way? Does your Christianity, does your faith bring sin to the place where you see it that way, where you have such a hatred for sin and a a reality that you weep over the effects of that reality and sin and empathy for other people. When sin is visible in all of its forms, does it stir you? Does it stir up in you a righteous anger and a righteous hatred for sin? 
When you see sin in your life, do you hate the father of lies more than you ever have? Are you incensed by sin, especially when you see it in your own life? Does it cause you to mortify it, kill it, destroy it? See, do the effects of sin, do the effects of sin not only in your own life, but what you see in others, does it cause you to weep for the lost? Does it cause you to reach out to them? So that others look at you as these looked at Christ when Jesus Christ wept and said, Behold how He loved me. They looked at Christ. They couldn't see Christ internally, but they certainly could see Christ externally. And from His actions, they knew that Christ loved this family. Listen, the Godhead is so serious about sin, so serious about its effects on us, that the only solution for the Godhead was for them to pay the price for us. That's how serious they are. Here's how the Apostle John put it in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called children of God. And such we are. For this reason the world does not know us. Why? Because it does not know Him. So here's the question. How serious are you? How serious are you? How serious are we about God? About the weighty things of Scripture? Is he weightless? Is he so weightless in our life that our relationship with him doesn't cause us to reach out to other people and tell them about Christ? Does it cause us to hate sin when when we see it? When we see it in our life, when we see it in somebody else's life so that we don't cower away from going and trying to help somebody who's caught in trespass? It was those kind of things that moved Christ. That's what moved him. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews weeping, he was angered. Internally, righteously angered at the effects of sin and empathetically he wept. It was these things that moved Christ to raise Lazarus from the dead. It's these things that caused Christ to raise us from the dead. God is serious, isn't he? The question is, are we? Are we? We all know people that have physically suffered out of a love for God. They've physically gone through trials because they've suffered simply by sharing their faith with others. Others have shown their love by their untiring sacrificial service on behalf of God to others. And then there are those who show their love by weeping over sinners and the salvation of souls weeping for them. All of those kind of people understand that God is serious. And so it's my prayer that others would say of us what they say of Christ right here. Behold how they love their master because of how we live. Because of how we live. Because we too are serious people. Doesn't mean we can't have fun. Doesn't mean we can't laugh. 
We certainly ought to do that. God gave us those emotions. But when it comes to the things of God, we should be eternally serious. Let's pray. Father, I trust that we have honored your name tonight in these words. I pray that we have accomplished all that you would have for us here as we look at this text. Certainly we could have camped any place on any one word and spent our night delving into the depths of what you mean by what you say. And yet you have seen fit to simply draw out for us the weightiness of your very character upon this moment. The reality that our calling is serious to you. You gave your very life that we might be your children and we ought to have that serious weightiness upon us that we would go and tell others they need to come to Jesus. And also, Father, we see the weightiness of your view of sin and how it moved you to righteous anger and yet empathy for those who are caught so much in it. Lord, we'll see the miracle actually happen, the physical miracle where you raise Lazarus from the dead and bring them back to the joy of this temporal life. And yet the picture of that for all of us being the spiritual resurrection is such a privileged joy to see. Thank you for these things that we've heard tonight. Lord, help them motivate us to greater love and good deeds with one another to share the gospel. This is that season we've talked about it. We've even heard testimony of those who are doing that already. Lord, help us to do that with faithfulness. We're never given a guarantee of how many days are left. Help us have that boldness, remembering these weighty things that we might tell others of Jesus Christ, that they too might come to know the seriousness that you see sin they might see your grace and mercy in that and come to know Jesus Christ by faith themselves. We thank you for your word. Father, use us this week for the ministry of your great name, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.